There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is presented by PolicyForum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy, Asia and the Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you're ready to take the next step in your career, why don't you check out our range of public policy courses available. From climate change to economics to national security policy, you can still apply to our programs for semester two. So jump online now and check out our full suite of graduate certificate masters and phd programs at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study now on today's policy forum pod we're bringing you something a little bit special earlier this month we recorded our first ever live online episode of ask policy forum the podcast where you ask the questions with an all-star panel of pod regulars plus one or two new faces we tackled your questions from recent weeks from the serious to the Well, slightly left field. Usually we only make this series available for members of our pod squad. That's our online community of podcast hosts, panellists and over 500 of our listeners. Don't forget to join us there on Facebook. You can find us by searching Policy Forum Pod. But due to popular demand, today we bring you part one of our rollicking chat about the issues that matter to you. It's led by Democracy Sausage podcast host Mark Kenny, the former press gallery journalist and now professor at the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute. And it'll take you on a fairly raucous ride discussing health, education, technology and the arts, plus the cheese versus chicken twisties argument takes another, dare I say it, twist. We'll bring you part two early next week, but for now, it's over to Mark. This is the third Ask Policy Forum, and I wonder whether we're going to have much to talk about this evening. As I said, there's been a bit happening, and uh, 
It's been an extraordinary 2020. Whether it's the rapidly disintegrating situation in the US and the total lack of leadership of President Donald Trump or Australia's slide into recession, even though the government just found a lazy $60 billion down the back of the couch, or, well, it was borrowed money really and it just hasn't, hasn't had to spend it. Tonight we're not only chatting with an awesome panel, but we're also joined live on Zoom by some of the Pod Squad members of the Policy Forum Facebook group. Due to social distancing requirements, as I said, and also the fact that no one really wanted to be in the same room as me, this is the first time we're joined, being joined live by an audience. So I'm all the more excited to welcome some of you today in our virtual podcast studio. We're glad that you are here with us. So join us as we test whether our eyesight is failing by going on a scientific drive through your questions. And with me in the car, gripping tightly and holding on for dear life, are four or five alert but not alarmed expert panellists. First up is Professor Sharon Bessel, Professor here at Crawford School and Section Editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. Sharon, glad to have you along. Hi, Mark. It's really great to be here. Now, Scott Morrison was recently told, as uh, we all saw, and some people around the world will have seen this, I think, uh, was recently told, get off my lawn by a homeowner owner, as he was announcing the government's new grants program, a building grants program, part of the uh, the uh, stimulus package. It wasn't particularly surprising that he was in Eden Monero, the electorate uh, where there is a by-election about to be fought for this uh, grant, but a chap came out while the Prime Minister was addressing the, the assembled media and said, oi, get off that lawn. I've just seeded that area. What would you say to him, Sharon, if he strayed onto the presumably immaculate manicured lawns of the Bessel Manor? Well, sadly, the Bessel Manor has a rather fabulous lawn of weed, so it wouldn't have been such an issue in our house. But I did think that was a, um, a, a fantastic exchange. I think I would have said something rather similar and it, it worries me. I mean, what is more un-Australian than walking across someone's sewed lawn? I, I think it was just incredibly worrying to see um, our Prime Minister do that to someone's newly sewed lawn. Well, I think, look, I think you might be being a bit harsh because I've been in the press pack for many years and uh, I think it was more the press pack and uh, associated hangers-on and, uh, um, you know, security people and so forth. There's a pretty big coterie of people that end up at those things and sometimes they're a bit, spontaneous movements are a bit impromptu so I, I I guessed it was really the location was was a dud location really in that sense um you would be right Mark but I don't know if you know Gugong I, I know Gugong because my son has soccer training out there from time to time and there's actually lots of parkland there it's quite a nicely designed community with um communal space so I'm not quite sure why they weren't in the communal space I'll tell you why, because it was about building. It was about building and renovation, and they wanted to have some new houses in the background. I guess they just didn't count on the fact that one of them was so new that someone had just sown lawn there. But uh, anyway, look, I, I'll make one observation about it. We had Jonathan Swan on Democracy Sausage quite recently. He's uh, an Axios correspondent from from the Washington Press Corps these days. Uh, he's really um, an excellent guy, an excellent thinker. I used to work with him at Sydney Morning Herald. And I saw that he tweeted, you know, he's been living in the US now for some years, but I saw that he tweeted in response to uh, the vision going around on social media of, um, of the bloke yelling out to Scott Morrison. Uh, and Jonathan Swan tweeted that it, uh, it warmed his heart and made him homesick. 
And I guess what he was saying was, you know, there's a fairly big gap between the, the events that are going on, the sickening events really that are going on in the US at the moment, the, the, uh, the, the vitriol, uh, the anger, the, uh, the, the appalling behaviour of the president uh, and to have a kind of a that, that sort of beautiful reality check of, I don't know, the kind of there's a sort of a comparative honesty about the uh, transaction of Australian politics, at least when you compare it to things that are going on at the moment. So Jonathan said he was pretty happy to uh, to see it because it made him homesick for Australia. Another returning guest, you will know her from Democracy Sausage, is Elizabeth Ames. Now, as I said when I was uh, making the acknowledgement of country, Elizabeth is not actually, she's an Australian, but she's not actually in Australia. She's based in the UK these days. So she's joining us from um, from London, where it is in fact morning time. So it's the it's a, it's a fact that I have a glass of red wine next to me as we uh, do this. But I'm betting Elizabeth. Uh, I should say I should just finish the uh, the introduction. I should say that you are the national director of the Britain Australia Society and you're a board trustee at the King's College Menzies Australia Institute. Uh, I was going to say to you though, though, Elizabeth, I'm betting though I have a glass of red next to me. It's a bit early in the morning for you. I've got a very large coffee. I was uh, considering a sort of orange juice and champagne concoction, but um, we had a late night watching films last night, so I thought a large coffee might be the answer first thing on a Sunday morning. And now when we were doing a Ask Policy Forum before, we obviously tackled some of the really big, you know, the sort of epic social, economic, political issues, and one of those was a question about whether cheese or chicken twisties is the favourite. Um, it turns out that we should have saved that question for you on this because you do have a twisties angle. Let's hear it. So I lived initially for a few years, as you know, Mark, uh, and Italy is, I think, the only other place in the world that has an approximation of twisties, but perplexingly initially they're known as Fonzies. Uh, <laughs> so you go to the corner shop for a bag of Fonzies um, and they only come in cheese flavour, unfortunately, no chicken available in Italy. Um, and they're not quite the same fluorescent yellow, I suspect. There's sort of some EU regulation along the line of straight bananas that doesn't let you have them quite as orange as they are in Australia. But if you're if you're a homesick Australian living in the Europe, um, you can pick yourself up a bag of fondies in Italy. Did you, uh, speaking of homesick, did you see the uh, the Scott Morrison on the lawn incident on social media or anywhere else? No, that actually didn't come up in my in my media. I always feel with those incidents, uh, really sorry for the person who's done the forward planning. So there'll be somebody in Morrison's office who's trekked down there in the middle of the day in the freezing cold to find a great spot for this uh, for this press conference, only to have their best laid plans go out the window because someone marches out of the house and gets furious at the press back on the lawn. So I always have a bit of sympathy for the uh, people organising behind the scenes when these sort of things happen. Yeah, well said. Also with us here is Dr. David Caldicott, who's been on Democracy Sausage before as well. He's an emergency medicine consultant at Calvary Hospital here in Canberra, senior clinical lecturer at the ANU School of Health and Medicine. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm, I'm outstanding on this uh, Sunday evening. Uh, had a had a good day here in the capital. It's a long weekend. I think we, we, we've got two long weekends in a row, which I mean, it's awesome, isn't it? It's the land of the long weekend. Um, Terrific! It is awesome. Although uh, I guess emergency, um, uh, you know, medicos tend to work all kinds of hours anyway. So 
you know, things like public yeah, holidays. Not a bit of a break for us. So I managed to get the last one off, but I'm working tomorrow. So oh. it's uh, very hit and miss as to which ones we get, which ones we don't. Now, it's been suggested to me that I should ask you this question. If it sounds a bit random, so be it. What and is? The... <laughs> you ready for it? What is the strangest health complaint you've tackled in your time? Oh, it's a good question. Um, you know, you go to a dinner party as a doctor, and the only thing that anybody ever asks you about is what is the strangest thing you've ever taken out of somebody's butt. Um, and, and I'm hoping that you're asking at a more sophisticated level than that, are you? Is that, or is this just a really, sort of no. subliminal inquiry? About no, good. So, uh, look, <laughs> I've, I've taken some bizarre things out of people, um, but yeah, it's mostly the connection between human and the inanimate, which is the most surreal thing. That which is where it's difficult to keep a straight face. The connection between the human and the inanimate. That's that's an interesting one. We'll have to come back to that at some point. Perhaps we (laughs) are going to come back to it in allegorical form. (laughs) Also with us is Dr Kim Cuneo, Senior Lecturer in uh, Composition and Convener of Musicology at the ANU School of Music. Kim's music has been played at the Olympics, the White House, United Nations and regularly in Australia. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Mark. It's lovely to be with you and everyone tonight. Now, if you were invited back to the White House to play for Donald Trump now, this might be a bit of a left-field question as well, but is there a a particular piece of music you'd be inclined to play for Donald Trump? I mean, perhaps you're a big Trump man. I don't know. Well, you know... Of course, I'm a Trump man. How could you not be? You know, at least make America great. You know, great so, unifier. That's just a given. But uh, if I did get that invitation, I think I'd probably do something from the Pergolesi's Stubbard Martyr. And the reason is that there's uh, in the opening there is a a particular phrase in Latin which is called "fach di," <laughs> and I think the, the, the feeling would be so surreal. I could only say it in Latin. Could you just say it one more time for us? Bach dies. Yeah, that sounds appropriate. <laughs> that sounds appropriate. And finally, we have Martin Pierce with us. He's a producer extraordinaire. He's the brains behind many of the podcasts that come out of uh, of, of the ANU, uh, and he's going to keep his, his eagle eye over the Q&A uh, and bringing up some questions as they come along. How are you, Martin? I am very well, thank you. I've got, um, I haven't started drinking, but I am drinking tea out of my Crystal Palace mug. So, right. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you. I hope that you're not uh, going to be farming Crystal Palace questions to us. Uh, um. <laughs> Look, I may well do. And if anyone wants to ask any Crystal Palace questions in the Q and A, they will be looked on very fondly. All I can say is, if Crystal Palace is the answer, it's obviously a pretty strange question. <laughs> now. Let's get down to it. Uh, We've got a question here from Nicole Tan on mental health. There have been many discussions on the economic impact of COVID-19 directly and indirectly. I feel that COVID-19 has caused a collective trauma in our society. I've heard some emerging discussions about the fallout of PTSD and related trauma among staff in the health sector. Is this going to be the next wave of stress and impact on Australia's healthcare, mental health, diagnosis and treatment? Perhaps this is one for you, David. It's a great question. And I think there is a uh, an emerging discussion at the moment about the impact on workers. It's a little strange for Australia, I have to say. Um, 
obviously Elizabeth will be familiar with the enormous stresses that are happening to my colleagues in the NHS, um, and it's it's they're overwhelmed uh, with what they're being faced with. Whereas in Australia, it's more like the uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, there, it's been very busy for healthcare providers, both in hospital and pre-hospital and out of hospital, in creating. Um, parallel healthcare systems to deal with those who might have an infection and those who don't. So it's been very stressful and hard work, but it's quite a different sort of stress. Um, there is definitely evidence of more people burning out among colleagues. I think that's a problem. Um, and I think the nature of the patients that we're seeing uh, are definitely different. So there will be a psychological impact in Australia but it'll be hard to extrapolate from other countries which have had a more characteristic um, uh, impact from COVID. It'll be hard to extrapolate that impact to Australia. I think we'll have something unique and probably as distressing, but in a different form. Yes. Did you want to buy into that, Elizabeth? I mean, it's uh, it's obviously a completely different, uh, in terms of order of magnitude, different challenge that Britain has faced from the one Australia has faced. Everything that Australian policymakers did was about managing the curve right from the beginning, really, uh, and preparing for uh, preparing our health system to the extent that could be done at short notice for, uh, you know, the possible onslaught for, for a flow of emergency cases to the hospitals um, that was, uh, you know, beyond their, their capacity to handle. Luckily for Australia, that didn't happen. Uh, not so for the UK, where the situation, you know, the, the, the health system became fairly quickly overwhelmed. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the NHS didn't get overwhelmed in the sense that hospitals didn't run out of beds. They were still able to treat everyone who turned up. Some, a couple of specific hospitals didn't have space and, and needed to send people onto the next hospital. But that is entirely, as David says, because so many people in the NHS worked incredibly long hours, worked double shifts. So, the NHS itself wasn't overwhelmed, but the individuals within the system, I think it's fair to say, very much were overwhelmed. And one of the things that's really worried me, and I think the original question was probably a little bit more also about mental health across the community, but focusing yeah. specifically on medical providers, is the pressure and the stress we put on medical providers now. You know, we're an increasingly secular society, both in Australia, here in the UK, and, and in a lot of the Western world. But people still need something to believe in. And it's been really striking here in the UK that the NHS has effectively replaced a lot of that religious belief in terms of something for people to hold on to during the, the pandemic. So every Thursday night we go out, we clap for carers. Uh, it's really striking. You walk around the streets of London and there are rainbows in windows and we love our NHS and NHS posters. It's a bit like, you know, I've been to Iran. There's sort of posters of the Supreme Leader everywhere um, uh, and religious paraphernalia there. And so it's almost like that, but it's all the NHS. And I really worry about the strain that that puts on individual medical providers who we have to remember are only human, need to be allowed the capacity to make mistakes, need the capacity to be overwhelmed. And if their patients and the community see them as sort of godlike figures or religious figures who will always heal them, who will always fix them, that's a huge amount of pressure to put on on medical providers on top of the workload that they have. So I think that's something we don't talk about enough, but uh, a really worrying development over here, certainly. Well, well does, that, does that obtain even when you've got 40,000 deaths, that, that, that there's this sort of sense that the NHS will fix it? I mean, there's, 
that's a very severe death toll. In fact, per capita, it's worse than the US. Yeah, it's re- it's actually very interesting to me. So it, I mean, I think it's inarguable now that the UK has had one of, if not the worst, response in terms of its sort of the way it's managed the policy and certainly the death the death toll. A lot of those deaths have been in care homes. It's come out today that nearly sixty percent of the deaths have been in care homes, which are not run by the NHS and are sort of separate to it, and that's been part of the problem. Um, and there is a real ability in the UK to separate sort of health outcomes from the NHS as a sort of totemic thing to believe in. So the UK often doesn't have as good healthcare outcomes as, as certainly other places in Europe, Australia. Um, but the belief in the NHS, the importance of the NHS as sort of the third rail of UK politics seems to transcend the actual performance as it were. Um, it's quite interesting watching, you know, obviously I use the NHS. I've had some amazing service on it, but it's quite striking to me being able to compare it to, to the medical service you get in Australia and, and certainly in Italy. Um, it, I would say a lot of the time it's not as good, it's not as modern, uh, and yet that's not reflected in the way people think about it here. Kim Cunio, do you think that uh, Australians uh, look at Medicare, our universal health system, which by, by any measure is a, a very successful universal health care system, do you think they look at it with that level of um, uh, sort of intensity and dependence or is it more just sort of taken for granted? Is there more of a low-key relationship with it? You know, Mark, this is one of those things about Australian human nature and while we like to believe in and identify with things, I think we do take things for granted in Australia and, you know, that's the sign of a good society in many ways But because we can say uh, if something is functioning, we don't have to make it more than it is or less than it is. But at the same time, this has brought up a lot. I think we have had to start thinking about what, what health is in this country So suddenly, I think we can all remember that sort of mid to late March period where suddenly a lot of assumptions we had collectively were being questioned. Like we've invested, you know, relatively very well in our health system, but suddenly is it good enough? Like how come we've outsourced all of these things? Like in terms of if we want to get respirators, how come we can't get them? How come we can't even get PPE quickly? So suddenly there was this feeling that although we have this very good system by itself, The fact that we're part of globalisation, I think, was a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of Aussies, but then we've coped quite well and I think we've sort of settled down again to our normal state. What do you think, Sharon? Uh, I mean, one of the, Sharon Bessel, one of the uh, turning points for the UK, I think one of the absolutely most newsworthy moments through this whole thing was that extraordinary, the extraordinary events that overwhelmed Boris Johnson personally and then which saw him make that uh, five-minute statement when he came out of hospital, revealing how close he had been to death and talking about the NHS. He used the term, it is the beating heart of Britain. Um, it was, for me, very striking to see a leader of a Conservative Party speaking with such passion about the, uh, the, the, the sort of fundamental centrality of the universal healthcare, of, you know, effectively of a non-privatised uh, health system. Uh, what did, did you have any observations about that and, 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 and its relationship with, uh, as Kim was saying, um, uh, the way Australians look at our healthcare system? Well, I guess one of the things with the, with the healthcare system is that in normal times when it's functioning well and people have access and uh, facilities and resources are available, you don't really notice that. You go to hospital or you go to your GP if you need it and you're treated and hopefully you you're, you're, um, you have a good outcome. 
And so it's just something that kind of ticks away in the background and no one thinks about. I guess what this crisis has done in all countries that are facing it is put a spotlight on the way in which the, the medical system copes or doesn't, but also the importance of it. It is, as you say, Mark, really interesting to see a conservative leader talk about the value of a, a, um, a public universal healthcare system. But I guess the NHS has been such a central part of the landscape in the UK for a very long time, even you know, as it has come under threat, it's still been absolutely central. Um, I guess what Kim says, I think, is, is really important that in Australia, we haven't faced the same level of crisis. And so we're not thinking about the value or the importance of the healthcare system in quite the same way, because we haven't been threatened. You know, the healthcare system has coped, we managed to stop the flatten the curve as, as the language goes before the, the the system was under too much pressure but I guess you know in a policy sense what we might want to reflect on here is the importance of universal health care and the importance of it being well funded and well resourced so it's able to function in time of crisis and to ensure that people have access I mean one of the things that we see in privatized systems is the great inequality in terms of who is able to seek medical care in a crisis or in normal times. And so if there is one thing I think that we really need to reflect on coming out of this, it is the value of universal, publicly funded essential services. We have a, a uh, just staying with health, just for uh, one question longer at the moment. Uh, we have a question from Erica Dunning, and it goes to the, the issue of telehealth. Now, I think this is fascinating and worth touching on because We've seen so many th so many ways in which uh, business and education and a whole range of functions have been transformed of necessity by the lockdown. Indeed, this very podcast we're doing right now, this sort of technology has become much more, we were all much more conversant with it than we were even a few months ago, simply because we've been forced into uh, things like, um, you know, remote conferencing, uh, remote meetings. Uh, using uh, this technology, using the internet in in uh, you know new and creative ways, telehealth's been a discussion around for a long time. Uh, but Erica Dunning asks, uh, is you know is it um, is it fair? Is it equitable? Are there people who aren't able to access it? Perhaps David, uh, you might have some thoughts on this. Well, I think it's uh, an area of real interest, particularly in the primary care, so the GP world. Um, and I've had conversations with several of my colleagues who work in that space who are both very supportive and perhaps a little antipathetic about it. Um, there are definitely uh, uh, demographics in Australian society that might find it difficult to access, um, particularly those who might need it the most, um, the disadvantaged, um, the homeless and the elderly. Mm. Um we don't have a, a particularly um, technology literate uh, older demographic uh, in Australia from all, all appearances as far as telehealth is going. So there are elements as far as um, access are concerned. And I think the other thing to consider is um, uh, the, the nature of medicine itself. It is a, a tactile um, interaction. Um, so there, it, it can't supplant all medical consultations. There are definitely aspects of medicine that can be addressed by telehealth, but there will always be a time when a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare provider needs to lay hands on. 
Uh, and so I think what we should be looking at is the deployment of telehealth in those areas where it can be best deployed, maybe even looking at how we can bring those disadvantaged communities on board, but it's never going to replace uh, a formal face-to-face consultation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yes, it's, a, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of the uh, other questions that's come up, this is a question from Peter Dwyer, and this doesn't specifically go to health and is a little more lighthearted, but I'll be interested to get your responses to it. Peter Dwyer asks, what's the weirdest habit you've developed while working from home? <laughs> Who would like to uh, respond to that? Peter, you're smiling. I'm going to, uh, Kim, you're smiling. I'm going to put you on the, on the spot here with this. Well, you know, at work, I have a standing desk, you know, I think I was part of that fashion about three years ago. And, it, you know, it's felt really good. And I suddenly moved to home and I've got these two tables that one is too high and one is too low, because I don't really spend that much time working from home. But being a musician, I discovered the perfect standing desk about three weeks ago, and it's the top of my piano. So I have the laptop set up on top of my piano, not right now, because it's a bit of a longer session, but I'll literally be zooming all day. And I can just mute myself and start playing the piano while I'm in a meeting. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So you're actually standing on the keyboard side of the piano, or is this a is this a grand piano? Yes. Look, let me just shift. It's just an upright, but you can see the upright is there. Oh so yes. Just on top is the spot where the laptop goes. Right. And I can be I can just be standing, put my foot on whatever pedal I want, and play a little ditty for myself. And uh, I do a spot every second Thursday on local ABC, and it's I've just got used to now. While I'm being interviewed, I can just play the piano. If there's a musical example I want to play, I can just play it while I'm talking. So I think when I go back to work, I'm looking to move in an upright piano in, into my office. You That's know? an excellent idea, Sharon Bessel. Well, I think I'm probably not alone in this habit, and it's it's not quite um, as interesting as Kim's, but I think Zoom style, where you kind of wear a reasonably smart-looking top at your pyjama trousers, has <laughs> something that I'm really enjoying. And a colleague said the other day, you know, I'm never going to wear hard pants again. And um, I'm, I'm with her all the way, you know, kind of soft pyjama pants or sometimes a onesie, you know. <laughs> Is is really good Zoom style that I think we should take into our normal life. And David, David Caldicott. Oh uh, well, I like doing primitive things, uh, and so um, I, I've started up a little smithy uh, in my and banged metal that's hot. Um, I've, I've given a crack at something called power carving, which is basically attaching sharp things to an angle grinder for the purposes of cutting wood. Have all digits intact so far. And given by uh, given a crack at uh, a bit of leather work, you know those old plague masks. 
I'm working on one of those at the moment, trying to sew one of those together and turn up to work on that. <laughs> well, that's good. It sounds absolutely ferocious, the idea of attaching things to uh, to emery wheels or whatever it is that you're doing. Oh, no, these are like hostile medieval burrs. And it'll cut, they're brutal things. They're, uh, you can take a car apart with them. So, you know, uh, there's a 100-meter exclusion zone around wherever I'm doing. It's great fun. You'll have to come out and do it. <laughs> That sounds pretty good. What about you, Elizabeth Ames? Have you uh, uh, developed any any habits uh, during this uh, work from home period that uh, you're going to reveal for us now? Sure. I actually love the idea of the plague mask. It reminds me of my favourite news shot from earlier uh, in the pandemic, which was a BBC journalist standing in the middle of an abandoned Leicester Square. And if you've been to London, usually Leicester Square is absolutely packed with tourists. And so there's no one but her and the pigeons and she's talking about it. And then slowly in the back of frame, a man in a medieval plague mask walks past as she's doing the live cross, which is just a brilliant piece of live television. Um, We don't have any outdoor space uh, and we're still, even now we're not supposed to go outside unless we really have a reason to. So we actually have quite a large landing and I have gathered up all of the pillows and cushions in the house uh, and there's a patch that gets the sun in the late afternoon and so I've created a little sort of landing nest which is where I retreat with a cup of tea and a book mid-afternoon if I need a sort of five-minute break and my uh, partner is under strict instructions not to disturb my little nest of cushions on the stairs. Well, that's pretty good. I, I must say I've, I've become uh, something of a cushion manager myself, all this um, sort of broadcasting from home and as uh, people will know, and I hope it's not too bad uh, as, as uh, in terms of audio as you're listening now, but um, it can be quite some of the crosses that you see on TV uh, and, and on radio, you hear on radio uh, of people from their homes when they would otherwise be in studios sound pretty roomy, you know, pretty echoey, a lot of, lot of uh, you know, poor audio situations. So for events like this, I'm, you know, I've got a, a kind of a routine now of, of uh, all, the, all the different cushions that I rapidly run around and gather up and pile up in a little kind of um, semi-stable kind of igloo of cushions just to kind of hopefully get a, get a bit of softening and, uh, and, to, and to deal with that, uh, that problem. But sometimes it works better than other times. There was a time, for example, when the whole thing collapsed and it knocked over my cup of coffee as well and, you know, there was, it was not good. Uh, but I, I think my to... lifelong my lifelong cushion collecting habit has really come into its own in lockdown. You know, I was talking to uh, an academic associated with the Australian Studies Institute with uh, with, with whom I'm uh, employed at ANU, and um, she was telling me this is a subject we'll have to come back to at some point. She was telling me there is a cushion problem in the world. Uh, this is a little known thing, but people buy far too many cushions. And they are, when you think about it, this is not surprising, but only when you think about it, they are really hard to get rid of. You know, they're made of materials that don't break down and they don't compress. You know, they keep springing back, which is, in fact, their advantage when they're in use. But because they're so cheap, vast numbers of them come in from China and other places, people tend to, it's a fast way of sprucing up your your house, you know, to buy some new cushions, ditch the old ones, put them in the bin or whatever people are doing. And there are these vast mountains of cushions that in landfill cause problems because, you know, they don't compress properly and they don't decompose and they soak up vast amounts of water and whatever other toxins are around the place. Very, um, very concerning. Now, Martin Pierce, I can see that you're um, looking distracted and that's how I thought I'd wait till he's not looking and then I'd uh, 
And I'd say, do we have any questions that uh, are coming in we should uh, deal with? Well, look, we do. There's there's quite a discussion going on in the Q&A there. And I want to draw your attention to a couple of them. First of all, we've got a, a point from Tim Whiffen. Now, Tim is a fellow podcaster, and I think he's passing verdict on your um, your mark, what you said about wrapping cushions around you, and he says that works well, so you've got the seal of approval from a fellow podcaster there. Um, but there are a couple of interesting things I just want to draw the panel's attention to. One, which is about telehealth, and Dean says the Liberal Party lack of vision with regards to the NBN drove the poor outcomes we have. Telehealth, telehealth potential in allied health, mental health, remote care, and social contact have probably been undermined by this lack of vision. So I think that might be an interesting thing to pick up on because I, th- I imagine, I think that one of the things we've all discovered whilst we've been working from home is that the NBN is not really the sort of gold standard internet that we were, we were promised. So how is that playing out in telehealth? Yes. Uh, do you have a, a thought about that, David Caldercott? I know, it, as you say, it is one of those things that is mostly about, uh, you know, GPs um, and, and the extent to which they can provide medical services in many cases to people who are uh, remote or unable to get to uh, to, to see a doctor. Um, what's well, the view know, about the, that in the medical community? Yeah, I mean, the if there was ever a country designed for the provision of remote medical care, it's Australia. Uh, And you have very good adaptation to the sheer size. You've got probably the best globally retrieval medical system in the world in the shape of the RFDS. But as far as equivalents for telecommunications are concerned, um, the national broadband in Australia just is well below par compared, say, for example, um, to other jurisdictions of similar size with similar problems like Canada. Um, So it is a a significant problem for healthcare providers, and um, it's something that obviously might have been better had it been done well the first time round, but it definitely impacts on the ability to provide good, particularly visual consultation, which is occasionally needed. Yeah. I think there's a really interesting... um, point here. I've seen some articles talking about how the pandemic has made us all realise that internet access and digital access should be one of the rights we expect as being part of society. And it really makes me think about Jeremy Corbyn's election platform last year in the UK, which, you know, I'm far from a Corbynista. um, And it was sort of throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. And one of the promises that, that Corbyn made if he was elected was that everybody in the UK would have access to fast broadband. And, of course, and that would be government provided. That was rubbished in the press as, you know, what a ludicrous, you know, everyone can have a pony for Christmas. I think actually that promise has really stood the test of time when we look at the ways in which people have and haven't been able to work adequately from home and continue doing their day jobs. We look at access to telehealth and certainly where most non-essential work in the NHS has slowed down to nothing. The ability for people to actually access GPs remotely here for, for smaller things, you know, getting a prescription for an infection or talking to someone about their mental health is really impacted by that access or lack of access. Um, and the UK, it's quite patchy as well. It's a series of different um, private providers. So I'm lucky in my house, we have Virgin Wi-Fi, which is the fastest broadband, but, you know, three streets over, they don't have access to it. So you are, again, very dependent on who who are the private providers. So the idea, I think, of thinking about internet and internet access and speed of internet as a really important part of the infrastructure of a society is something that I would like us 
to take forward after this. I think the other thing that I would add as a parent of many, many, many small children is that the... Um, <laughs> have, they, have they been growing in number during lockdown? Does it feel as no, they double every couple of days? Enough, Elizabeth. Wait, no, no, you, the, the gestation isn't quite there yet. Um, no, the... Um, <laughs> The educational requirements, um, I think we're going to see more, be it in lockdown or not lockdown, we're going to see a greater requirement. And even following this episode, we're going to see educators going, oh, this is actually a, a platform that we could be looking at. But in Australia, we we clearly had problems with the homeschooling as a consequence of internet um, failings. And I don't, whereas I think that the ambition to provide education through this methodology is great. I don't think we have the infrastructure to do so. Yes. Go on, Kim Pionier. I just wanted to really echo what Elizabeth said. I think it's a vital point to make that it has become almost a a human right to have access to the internet in, in, in this point in our lives. And so it's something we should all really be advocating for. I see it at a huge degree in music because we we see such a difference between the haves and the haves-nots. So, for example, all our students now, they, they do their one-on-one music lessons by Skype or via Zoom. So we can see which student only has an old phone or which student has good broadband at home or which student really has nothing. And some students, for example, they have to they have to film themselves playing their piece and then email it to their teacher because they have so little data on their phone plan. And it makes you realise what the difference is between people, even in a a relatively well-educated part of Australian society. When we go to Indigenous subcultures, when we go to the elderly, as it's been said, or we go to regional areas, we have something that is a really big issue because this is going to go on for another year or so. It's interesting. Dean Trigenza has uh, just sent a message in, one of our listeners, saying that uh, it's a way of dealing with urban sprawl if we have adequate uh, adequate functioning high functioning internet because obviously it can it can be a way of bridging that distance of removing that distance but uh, it does have to it does have to be universal really or approximating universal in order for that to be said uh, what what are you what are your thoughts about this Sharon I think we, we were talking earlier about um, you know the NHS and the healthcare system and sort of making the point of the importance of universal access and I think we can see um, internet as a human right, but it's also an essential service. Um, and those things often go hand in hand. And I think that's how we have to really think coming out of this. You know, what are the things that we need for a society to function and to ensure that there's equity at the starting point and then equality in terms of outcomes? And what we've seen really clearly, um, particularly I think through education, is that there's enormous inequity. What's interesting in terms of broadband is that it's not always driven um, by economic status the way some other things are because in Australia, as in the UK, you can be a couple of blocks apart and have very different access um, to the to, to, um, broadband or you know, your, your internet speed can be very, very different. But what we have really clearly seen are the inequities in terms of students from kindergarten right through to university being able to access education because of the nature of broadband. So I think we have to think about this as a universal, as, as an essential service. And once we think about essential services, I think we need to think deeply about how they're providing, how they're provided to ensure that there's equity of access and equality of outcomes. And as soon as we start privatising or thinking about essential services as being for profit, then we lose the ability to ensure that there's, there's that equality of outcomes. 
Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating point. I mean, it's oft remarked that the, uh, the, the COVID crisis, the lockdown, has exposed all kinds of things. And in, indeed, we could talk about uh, the extent to which it's a critical factor in, um, in the demonstrations and the breakdown of law and order and the anger that is coursing through countries, particularly in the United States and, and in some other places. Um, but one of the things that, and which is very germane to this particular part of the discussion, which was exposed in Australia quite early on in this issue about homeschooling, suddenly closing schools and parents having to uh, having to access, um, you know, educate, having to do some of the education themselves and having to access lessons via the internet and so forth, was that the kids in private schools who had the latest laptops and tended to live in well-serviced suburbs and, uh, you know, had, had all the resources and their schools were well set up for it, were in a better position in many cases than kids in, um, in uh, let's say, um, less well-off areas. Uh, some of them would not even have their own computers. They might not have broadband on at home. These kinds of things very quickly exposed and we saw quite a, a sort of disparate allocation of, uh, of resources exposed right there at the start of this lockdown. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well um, if you think about not just the access and the ability to do these things, but also parents who have the time and the ability to be engaged in those lessons and who are able to support their children. My sister works um, with the Department of Education in Victoria actually on literacy and, and particularly helping children from non-English backgrounds reach the same level of sort of English skill. And she spent time working in remote Indigenous communities as well and has a real focus on, on access to, to English and language as an important part of education. And one of the things she's really noticed across the lockdown has been that that inability to access the resources is then compounded. Often these children have parents who are essential workers. You know, they're doing the work that we've considered essential in this lockdown. Their parents aren't able to be at home. So not only do they not have the internet and the computers and the access, they also don't have parents who are able to work remotely. They don't have parents who have the same sick leave provisions or caring leave provisions. So it's something that cuts right across not just the access and the tech, but also what people's home setup is and, and how they're supported. So I think we have put a lot of pressure onto schools in Australia and in the UK to really take over that work. Um, you know, parents are at work and we sort of expect schools to be caring for children and enable people to go to their jobs. And when that is removed, we start to see that not only are there inequities in the schools, but those inequities are then compounded uh, at home. And that is something that we should be focusing on as well. And, and how do schools have the support they need to help support parents who, who don't have the free time and the ability that some others do? That's where we'll leave it for part one of this edition of Policy Forum Pod. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions, don't forget to reach out. We're on Twitter as APPS Policy Forum, that's Apps Policy Forum, or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. You can also find us on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod, where you can join pod hosts, panellists, and a great group of listeners to discuss new episodes and get first access to the Ask Policy Forum series. And before we let you go, a quick reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows from. And if you're already on it, 
please also leave us a review. We're always keen to know what you think about the pod, what we do well and what we could do better. We'll be back with you early next week with part two of this discussion before we resume regular programming next Friday. But until then, stay happy, stay safe, look after yourselves and each other and cheerio for now. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.